Well, as always, church, it is good to be with you. If you are new or busy, my name is Tyler. I'm the downtown campus pastor. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1. Last week, we started preaching through the book of 1 Peter. So it's a letter from the Apostle Peter, the former disciple of Jesus. And he's writing this letter to a suffering and persecuted church in what is now modern-day Turkey, to a region of churches. And last week, we focused on this term, exile. We focused on the term exile because he's using the term exile to describe what does it look like, what does it feel like to follow Jesus in this life. And that is really, of all the books we could have studied in the Bible, we chose 1 Peter because we wanted to, as a church, sit under and hear from what would God have to say What would he have to say to people who are very familiar with the feeling of being a sojourner in a foreign land? How would God speak to a people who are being persecuted and suffering because of their faith? What we learned last week is no matter the time, no matter the place, Christians are always living in exile in this life. No matter the time, no matter the place, Christians are always living in exile. When you believe, there's an incredible thing that happens, when you believe this news about Jesus, of his death and resurrection, that that wasn't just some random death and resurrection, but that was for you, what happens is God begins to change your sense of place and change your sense of home. He begins to change your allegiance and your affections to match Jesus and his kingdom, your true home. He changes your native language from self-promotion and preservation into love of God and others. He changes your values from self-righteousness and self-indulgence into grace and holiness. He changes your routine and your patterns of behavior from personal comfort and preference into sacrifice and devotion. And what happens as God continues to shape you, inform you more to the image of Jesus and his kingdom, here's what happens. This world feels more and more like a foreign land. It feels more and more like a foreign land with a strange language and tongue, with strange customs and values and strange currency. It feels less and less like home. And the churches who are receiving this letter from Peter, it's abundantly clear to them that they are in exile because they are being beaten and mocked. Some are dying. They are losing because of their allegiance to Jesus as the true king. And that's what difficulty does. That's what suffering does. It has this ability to wake you up to your exile. It wakes you up to what was already true. And that's one of the great benefits and blessings of being a Christian today in America. One of the best blessings of where we are of the unique tensions and challenges of our time, and side note, every generation and every time period has unique tensions and challenges, but to be a Christian now in America is a great blessing to feel a little bit of our alien status because it wakes us up. They are the spiritual smelling salts of God to wake you up that you're not home yet, that you've never been home here, and maybe, just maybe, you forgot that. Maybe what a lot of Christians feel today, maybe it's not so much rooted in wanting to honor God. Maybe we've become too cozy here. Maybe we kind of want this place to be home. We kind of like our lives the way it is. I like feeling in control and in power and no one really uh, getting on to me for what I believe. I really like that. And maybe the mourning and the trauma that we're feeling in so many ways is not because we've wanted to honor God, but because we've forgotten we're not home. Maybe we don't want God's homeland that's coming 
one day on this earth, the new heavens, new earth with us, maybe we don't want that because to get to that, you're gonna have to endure many trials and tribulations. Maybe that's what's going on in us. But regardless, regardless of the difficulties of what it means to follow Jesus, what's incredible is God's word to exiles is not full of fear. His word to exiles is not full of trepidation. It's full of confidence and hope. See, even though, even though you and I, if you're a Christian, you're addressed as an exile, that's not the main focus of Peter. The main focus is not that. Your exile is merely the context in which God begins to tell you the incredible realities he wants you to focus on. See, when you read the entire letter of 1 Peter, the tone is not timidity and fear. It's unbelievable. This is a letter to a suffering, persecuted church, and the tone is confidence. The tone is boldness. The tone is hopeful and even daring at certain points. And as we read the letter together, what you're gonna see is why that's the case. How in the world can they have that level of confidence if they're being persecuted? How in the world can they have that level of assurance when they're suffering the way that they are? How can they do that? Well, throughout the letter, Peter's gonna show us, but even in the first two verses, in the greeting that Peter writes to these churches, you see where all of this hope and confidence comes from. Look at 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. 1 through 2. Says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What we see really clearly is that our hope, our hope in the midst of great difficulty comes from the electing love of God for us. Our hope in the midst of great trial is God's electing love for us. The very first title that Peter gives to you, Christian, is not exile. The first title, title is elect, elect. See, our title of exile is a temporary one. It's a temporary one, and in due time, it will no longer apply. But the term and title, elect, chosen of God, has been yours from eternity past and will be yours into eternity future. The very first thing God wants you to know about yourself is you're wanted by him. You're wanted by him. He chose you. He wanted you for himself. Because when you read the Bible over and over and over and over again throughout the scriptures, it's really important to God to keep telling his people, hey, let me tell you why I love you the way that I do. He never wants his people to think they're treasured and valued and adored for any other reason, for any other reason than the fact that he wanted his people to know his love. It is not that we believed so he loved us. That's not how it worked. It's he loved us, empowered our belief so that all of his love would be dependent on him and not us. He chose us. He elected his people. Now, this is one of those foundational stories of how you came to faith. Why do you believe in Jesus in the first place? It's one of those foundational stories that if you don't get it right and you misunderstand it and you think in some form or fashion you had to do something in order to earn his love, then it's going to skew in your mind what it means to know God 
and what it means to know his love, your understanding of it won't be as full. That's why God keeps saying it. He keeps saying over and over again, my love is not owing to anything you have done. It's all owing to me. I wanted you. You did not force my hand. You did not put me in your debt. I had to do something for you. I wanted to love every single one of you. It was my decision. And there's a myriad of texts. So many texts I could take you to show you how God chose us, but I'm just gonna give us one for the sake of time. Ephesians 1, four through five says this. It says, even as he chose us, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. One of the incredible things that God has done in this church over the last 15 years is produce so many stories of adoption. I mean, there have been and are currently so many families and individuals who've sacrificed a lot so that children who've gone through a tremendous amount of pain and sorrow could be brought into their family. I really, really hope God continues to write that story at our church of adoption and foster care so so long as we exist as a people together. And while every adoption story is different, every adoption story is different, it will be very important one day for those children to know their story. One day it'll be very important for them to understand how they're brought into this family. It's one of those stories that will massively shape their understanding of who they are. And every adoptive parent, every single one, wants their child to know that through everything, through the highs and lows of this process, that they're loved. They want that more than anything. Talk to any adoptive parent. That's what they want because it's difficult and it's trying, but they want their child to know through everything, I wanted you, I loved you that even though their story is full of pain and sometimes abandonment, that's not their whole story, that they're loved and wanted by their parents. And part of what showcases the great love of adoption is how much the parents think about and plan for and go through in order to bring their child home. And that story is really important for them to know. But imagine this, imagine there's a child who's been adopted and they grow up and they get older. They get older and they're at home one day with their parents and some friends come over that don't know their story. And so they're in the other room, their parents are in a different room hanging out and they're in the front room talking to some friends and their friends ask this, chi- this child of theirs, hey, what's your story? Like, how, how did you get here? Imagine if the parents heard them tell this story. Well, I mean, I grew up in a really, really sad situation. It was so difficult. I mean, it was really just no hope for me. I didn't have any parents, no one was taking care of me really, but I'd heard a rumor that there were these letters scattered around my city. These letters scattered around. And I'd heard there was some really incredible things that the letter said, so one day I finally found one of these letters. And I started to read it, and here's what it said. To, who, to whoever finds this letter, we love you, and we want you to be our child. We love you, we want you to be our child. Our names are so-and-so. And we live in this place called Austin, Texas. And we know that we're a long way from you, but we can't tell you enough how much we want you to be our child. So please, find a way to the airport. On the back of the letter, there's a locker number. 
We've hidden a plane ticket there. You can get the plane ticket, and if you can get to our door, if you can get to our house, you will be our child, no questions asked. We can't wait to meet you. And the child says, I found that letter, and I was so desperate. I knew I had to go. So after many crazy stories and late nights and insane things that went on, I finally arrive at their doorstep. I arrive at their doorstep, I ring the doorbell, and I hear people moving inside. They're moving inside, they're hanging out. I think they're about to eat dinner, I can hear plates being pulled out. And a man opens the door who I've never met before. And I introduce myself, I hand him the letter, and why I came. He smiled back at me, asked me my name, and he said, welcome home, son. And the rest is history. Now, imagine you're the parents in the other room. Parents who adopted that child. I mean, what are you thinking as you're hearing them tell this version of the story? First, you think, grossly inaccurate, not true, kind of a liar. We're going to talk about that later, (laughs) right? But then secondly, secondly, it would break their heart if that's what they thought happened. It'd break their heart. Because that story, that version of the story, makes their love for that child look really weak. I mean, think about it. In that story, his parents didn't want him in particular. In that story, he didn't, they didn't want him in particular. Anyone would do. In that story, they would have been fine if he never arrived at their door. He'd been fine. All they did was make themselves available. We're available. If you could somehow get here, we'd accept you. But that's not the story of adoptions. Not at all is that the story. The real story sounds something like this. We saw you. We saw a picture of you. We met you. And before you were ever in our home, before you were ever legally our child, we loved you. I mean, we thought about you all the time. We prayed for you all the time. We talked about you all the time. We traveled back and forth and back and forth and back and forth again. We spent our savings. We raised even more money so we get everything in order and then we waited and waited and waited and waited until finally the time came when we could come and get you and bring you home with us. You didn't do a thing. You didn't do a thing. You couldn't have if you wanted to, and you didn't have to. It was our joy to do all of that for that moment of holding you for the first time and bringing you into our family. That's the story of adoptions. And what makes it compelling is that the parents were thinking and planning for this child in particular, not just any child in the world, but this child in particular. And no matter the barrier, no matter the cost, they were going to overcome that to bring them home. That's why that story is compelling. In church, God tells us in John 1 that you were not made his child by any effort of yours. It wasn't by the will of man, the will of the flesh, but by the will of God. Ephesians 1 tells you you were predestined to be his, chosen to be his. And John 6 says, Jesus says himself, you can't even come to me unless the Father draws you to me. God is doing all the work. He does not want you thinking. He just made a way for you generally. He just made himself available. Scattered some letters out in the world. Hopefully you'll make it home. I did most of the work. It's all paid for. You just have to believe. 
And if you will finally figure it out and believe me, then I'll accept you, whoever you are, nameless person. That's not at all what happened. And when we believe that, you don't highlight his love, you lessen it. You lessen it because it wasn't special for you. You just happen to hear the gospel at the right time. You happen to grow up in the right state. You happen to be in the right place at the right time. Thank God. That's not what happened. And it undermines the picture painted in the Bible. And what Peter is saying, if you're going to make it in your exile, you have to know first and foremost, you are his elect, his chosen. Those he has known before the beginning of time. First Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. He wants you to know first and foremost, your suffering and your pain will be temporary but your standing as God's chosen, his son, his daughter, he wanted you forever. That's the first thing. But in the second verse, here's what he does. He begins to modify. Okay, you're an elect exile according to what? For what purpose? What's he doing? Look at verse two. Verse two, it says, according, so you're an elect exile according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What's incredible you see in this text, every member of the Trinity is writing your story. Every one of them. Father, Son, Spirit, God is writing every single part of your story. And I think, I think Peter chose these particular things of foreknowledge and sanctification and obedience because he's speaking to a suffering people. He's speaking to a people who are in the midst of trial, in the midst of loss, and he has particular things he wants them to know in order to combat certain experiences we have in suffering. So that first one, you are an elect exile according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's fascinating how suffering can cause even the most prayerless person to pray. Have you noticed that? Suffering can cause even the most prayerless person to pray. Because when crisis hits our lives, we all sort of find ourselves looking upward to, I have no help here, everything I try doesn't work, will somebody up there help me? Because what happens in suffering is the illusion of how steady and sturdy your life is is taken away, isn't it? Crisis has this ability to shout at you things that were, have always been there, that this life is flimsy. C.S. Lewis says it this way, he says, Pain, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In crisis and pain, we find ourselves being very aware of our need for God, and we find ourselves crying out to God in prayer. Maybe you've been through a season of suffering. What happens is we tend to pray with more fervency and frequency than ever before. We're praying so much, God help me, God help me, God help me, God help me. And what will happen often is when you're going through trial and suffering, what will happen often is you'll be praying and you'll be asking God to heal you or save you or do something miraculous and what happens sometimes, he does not answer your prayers in the ways and the times that you want. You're praying more than ever before and yet you're suffering and loss and pain and loneliness continues. 
This is why it's so easy in the midst of suffering to feel forgotten by God, to feel forgotten by him, to think, I cried out to him and I got nothing. I cried out to him and I got no response. This is a common, so you know, this is a common Christian experience. Psalm 13, King David, a man after God's own heart, he penned this, he said, how long, oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? David thought, God, where are you? David thought that. He's going through pain and suffering and he's wondering, God, I know you exist. I know that. I don't see you. I don't see you. Where have you gone? Suffering may awaken us to God, but sometimes it doesn't seem that it awakens him to us, right? Suffering perks up your spiritual ears to say, I need God's help. And so often we cry out and we don't feel and sense him responding to us. That's why in the midst of exile, Peter tells us, you've been foreknown by God. You've been foreknown by God. That word foreknowledge does not mean he simply knew information about you. It does not mean he simply knew that you would exist and how your life would go, that he just knew trivia about you. No, God knows his people. He has a foreknowledge of them in a special way he doesn't have for other things. It was a special knowing. Here's what Peter is communicating. is from the beginning of time, God had been thinking about and already loving you. Before he created a thing, you were on his mind and heart. He was already thinking about you and how he would love you and how he wanted to be with you already before you ever had a thought of him. He knew you in a special way. Before you ever existed, he had you in mind of I cannot wait to love them. I already love them. I can't wait to bring them home to be with me. That's why in the midst of suffering, you have got to cling to the fact God will never forget me. He doesn't forget. Long before I ever thought of him, he had been thinking of me. There is no circumstance that can pull you from him, no reality that can take you from him. Peter says, you've been foreknown. Don't be confused. Don't feel forgotten. He can't forget you. So you are elect exile according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Secondly, look at verse two again. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, too, in the sanctification of the Spirit. You're an elect exile in the sanctification of the Spirit. So in a time and place of exile, where you feel your alien status and you feel how powerless you are. When you feel like, hey, all I see are difficulties, all I see are losses piling up. In that context, in that moment, when you feel just how weak you are, that's when God says, I have set you apart by my spirit. The word sanctification there, sometimes in the Bible, is talking about the slow process of becoming more like Jesus. But right there, the sense is you've been set apart for a special purpose. You're an elect exile in the sanctification of the Spirit. You've been set apart for some special purpose that God has for you. And in fact, what he's saying, what he's communicating is that even your time in exile has purpose. 
that actually it's in your exile that God wants to accomplish more joy and more life and more character in you, but it comes through suffering and loss. That your time in exile is not an afterthought as if God didn't know what was happening. He wanted to put you in this season, put us in this season together to teach us things we wouldn't have learned otherwise. He wanted to set us apart for his purposes. And all of us, every one of us in this room has gone through extremely difficult situations. I mean, even, even now, now as I say this, there are people who I know in this room, who I know in this church, who are going through tremendous suffering. Tremendous. They have lost and are losing so much. And if, side note, if, if you're going through suffering and nobody knows, tell somebody. Talk to somebody. One of the ways God comforts people and shows his presence is through his people. But there's so many people in the church going through so many difficult things and it's in these times of loss, in this time of exile, as God's elect and chosen, he says, I have set you apart for special purposes. But it doesn't feel that way, does it? Like when you're going through suffering, it does not feel like, oh, God has a special purpose for my life. It feels and seems senseless. Suffering does not seem in the midst of it and trial does not seem purposeful. It seems senseless. Maybe you've said this before. What good could come of this? God, seriously, what good comes of this? Why this way? And what God has promised in the Bible and what Christians have attested to for the last 2,000 years is God's ability and wisdom and power to take the most terrible scenarios and use them for our good. To have special purposes within them that they're able to somehow create a deeper, longer lasting joy and trust in him. That in the silence and the waiting and the longing, God is crafting and working good for you even in the midst of suffering. He has sacred, set apart purposes for you in it. There are things that you right now will hate with all your heart that one day you will thank God for. I know for me, I'm, I'm actually really thankful that he's been incredibly kind to honestly reteach me this recently, to reteach me this without going into uh, too much detail. The last couple of years for me and my family have been the saddest of my life. Have been the saddest of my life. There has been so much hurt and loss and conflict and it's been incredibly complicated and nuanced. And in all of that, here's what I wanted to be. In all of the hurt going on, I wanted to be the strong one. I wanted to be the one that God would use to restore brokenness. I saw myself, I envisioned myself being the one who listened and counseled and persuaded and taught and served in such a way that God used it to change things. I prayed so many prayers for God to do that. It was a role I was familiar with. And I did everything, and I've done everything in my power to help 
and nothing got better. I mean, I've literally never been, I have literally never been a better pastor to any people in my life, and I have seen zero. None of my hopes come to fruition. None of them. And in the midst of that, it was really, really difficult. You're thinking, God, I'm doing everything I know how to do. I'm trying my best to help. I actually am praying for you to use me, and nothing is changing. And even though this story, honestly, is still in process, and I'm honestly still hopeful God will show off his mercy eventually, right now, in this moment, I can say with 100% integrity, I'm thankful for how hard and futile it's been. I'm so thankful for it. I'm thankful for it because what God was doing in that season was stripping me of any sense of strength. He was stripping me of that. He was taking away any notion that I could carry every problem and I could solve every situation and you just put me in there and I'll make it happen. And I was so enslaved to feeling strong. And you know when you're enslaved to feeling strong, you know what comes with that? An incredible amount of pressure and anxiety. Because you gotta be the strong one. You gotta be the one to solve the problem. And what God has been teaching me and is continuing to teach me through this process of futility is showing me it's so much happier to be weak with God than strong by myself. It's so much more joyful because I don't have to bear the weight of everything. That I can have a God who loves me and he has all power and he'll sort it out. And I can trust him and he'll work on my behalf. He has so many times and he keeps teaching me, Tyler, you gotta trust me. You're not made to be strong. You're a very weak person. And I'm learning to have my response not to work against that and prove how strong I am. I'm learning to say, amen, I am. And it's so much happier to be in that place to go, God, thank you. Thank you for how hard it is because I'm learning I'm enslaved to feeling strong. See, two years ago, if you'd asked me, am I thankful for what was happening? I would have told you absolutely no. I would have said, no, I'm gonna pray that God changes it. And now I'm glad he didn't. Because things that were painful and hurtful God has as a way to turn them into gifts and to make you better and refine you. And if every Christian that you admire, every Christian you admire for their love for God and faithfulness to God, almost without fail, has been through tremendous suffering. Ask them, what have you gone through? When you read stories in history of Christians who've gone before us who were world-changing inspiring, almost without fail, they went through great suffering. Does God use good times? Absolutely. Does he use good times to change us? Absolutely. But there's something about suffering and pain that speeds up that growth process. There's just something about it, that he accomplishes things through it, and there's meaning in it. So listen, if, you're, if you feel right now, I'm in exile, I don't know what to do, I feel lost, I feel helpless, I feel needy, Know God has sacred purposes for you in it. 
He has not forsaken you. He's not left you. He has set you apart in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will be with you, working even when you can't sense it or feel it. Some of you want to quit faith right now. Some of you are this close to saying, I'm done. He's with you. He set you apart. His purposes will be accomplished. Your exile is not in vain. And then lastly, lastly, look at verse two. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, lastly, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, you have been made an elect exile to obey Jesus who died for you. Listen, obeying Jesus is not difficult to do when it doesn't cost you anything. Obeying Jesus is not difficult to do when it doesn't cost you anything. When his commands are to do things you already wanted to do in the first place, obeying Jesus makes all the sense in the world. So when you've always wanted a family, you've always wanted a family, being faithful to your spouse makes sense. Of course, I want a family. Yeah, I'll follow Jesus to be faithful to my spouse. When you love your job, when you love your job, working hard and being faithful in your job makes sense. When someone apologizes to you for something that didn't even really hurt your feelings at all, forgiving them makes sense. But when obeying Jesus begins to cost, when obeying Jesus begins to cost, is when you and I need to be reminded that you were made to obey him. It's when it begins to cost, we were made, we have to be reminded we're made to obey because for these Christians in the first century, obeying Jesus demanded sacrifice. It demanded sacrifice. Their persecution was because of their obedience. Their faithfulness equated to loss. I need you to hear that. Often, the American prosperity gospel is faithfulness always means up and to the right. Sometimes faithfulness will mean loss. That's what it'll mean. There will be times when you, to obey Jesus, will go against everything you have known to be true. When his word will contradict everything you've been taught and everything everyone around you says. And here's what will happen. There will be consequences. You know, if I obey Jesus in this way, there's a consequence that I think is coming with that that terrifies me or a consequence that infuriates me. So here's what we'll be tempted to do. You and I will be tempted, and this happens all the time. Do not think you're exempt from this. This happens all the time. You'll be tempted to say, well, Jesus would never want me to not be happy. He, he would never want me to feel any sort of discomfort or pain at all. And so I know clearly what the word says right here, but you don't know Jesus the way like I know Jesus. He never wants me to feel unhappy, even for a moment, even for a millisecond. So if it makes me feel unhappy, surely it's wrong. Surely he'll understand. Surely the church has messed this up and I have finally seen clearly how we should obey him. That happens all the time. 
But that's why Peter says to a people who are suffering because of their obedience, he tells them, you were set apart to obey him, even when it cost. And actually, especially when it costs. Especially when it costs, because it's when obedience begins to cost us where we see, am I after Jesus or his stuff? When it begins to cost us is when you begin to see, really, is it really Jesus I'm after? Or have he and I just agreed so far up to this point, but when we diverge in our opinions and our perspectives on the world, I go with me. I go with me. If you only obey when it doesn't cost, you are not obeying Jesus in all the ways you think. If you only obey when it doesn't cost, you are following your own commands, not his. But what's incredible is that verse says, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. That second part of that phrase is really important because in the face of loss, so when you're thinking about, okay, I have to obey in this way, it's going to cost me, how do you encourage yourself? How do you bolster your confidence? What do you say to yourself to be reminded, this is worth it? You think about the sprinkling of his blood because though he is our king and we follow him, he was first the one who died for us. You've gotta hear me. His commandments on your life are not for you to prove yourself to him. There, it's not as if Jesus is constantly evaluating your status and your worth based on how you obey. That's not true. His commands are for your freedom and your joy, but his blood secures your worth and value. If you want to understand Christianity, you have to understand that sentence. His commands are for your freedom and your joy, but his blood secured your worth and value and status as his. You have to know that in order to follow him. His blood guarantees that through every single failure, every single moment of sorrow, you will always be his. Obeying Jesus will cost you, perhaps in ways you can't even imagine right now, but Peter is saying, you were chosen for this. You were destined for this to obey him and follow him. And Peter is so confident that God's people will obey Jesus because of the extent to which Jesus went to secure their obedience. His blood secures your faithfulness. That's why you'll keep being faithful because his blood continues to be strong. It continues to inform and empower you to follow. See, here's, here's what we need to take away. The only way for you to get through intense times of trial and suffering and loss is to have a God-centered faith. A faith rooted and founded and orbiting around what God has done and who he is and nothing to do with you because if any part of your faith is rooted in your discipline and any part of your faith is rooted in your love and your strength and even your faith, persecution, and suffering will tear you apart. It'll tear you apart, why? Because eventually persecution and suffering causes us to run out of everything we thought we were. Eventually you don't have any strength left. Eventually your love has run out. Eventually even your faith seems to be at best 
a faint flicker of a flame on a candle. And you will be left if it's on you. You'll never want to admit where you really are because if I admit how little I believe right now, then I'm probably gonna be kicked out. If your faith is at all rooted in you, you will eventually fail in every way you swore you never would. If you live life long enough, you will fail in ways you never thought you would. So praise God, it's not dependent on you. Praise God, it has nothing to do with me. That's so freeing to know he chose you and he knew you and he set you apart and he said, I want you to be mine and I'll keep you and I'll be with you and you're gonna make it because I bought you. It had nothing to do with you. My love was free for you. So when you're failing and struggling, you don't have to wonder, is he gonna kick me out? You never got in because of you. You were brought in because I wanted you. You weren't just some general person who happened to find your way to my door. I went and sought you out when you hated me and I brought you home. That's who you are. You may be in exile, but that's not who you are. You're his. You're elect. You're chosen. You're wanted. That's where our confidence comes from. And no suffering and no loss and no politician and no boss and no MRI scan and not even death can speak a stronger word than what God has spoken over your life. Elect, chosen, blood-bought, mine. That's who you are. And when you're in exile, don't ever listen to anyone who says otherwise. Let's pray together. Father, I don't know what else to say after thinking about these truths than thank you. God, I don't know how else to respond than to tell you you should be worshiped and you should be honored. The thought you have of your people, the way you think about us and plan for us and work in us. God, we have to tell you It doesn't make any sense if you look at us. God, if we think about all the ways we have left you and run away from you and rebelled against you and not thought of you and been apathetic towards you, God, when we think about all those things, your love feels preposterous. It feels too good to be true. And God, your word comes in again and again and again and says, You have only skimmed the surfaces of my love. God, that's the kind of people we want to be. We want to be a God-centered people. A people who look at other people and say, I'm not any better than them. The reason I know God is because he was gracious and kind. God, thank you. Would you make us a people who believe these great truths and respond in worship and give our lives as a response. Who say, this God, his love is so incredible, how could I withhold any part of me from him? 
So God, as we sing these songs, as we leave this room, make us a people who have a great sense of your electing love for us. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen.